Hello, and welcome to the Aging Aid for Sissies podcast. My name is Marcy Backus, and I am your host. On today's episode, we have a great interview with Dr. Mitch Kleonsky. He and his wife, Emily, have written a book, Dementia Prevention, Using Your Head to Save Your Brain. This has been published by John Hopskin. I can't say that. John Hopskin. I can't do it. Okay, everybody. I'm going to try again. Johns Hopkins Press. And in order to be published by them, it has to have scientific backing. So listen to this great interview. Make sure you get the book. Head to my website, www.agingaforsissiespodcast.com. Under the resources page, you will have information that links you right to um, Dr. Kleonsky's website, which is braindoc.com. And I will also have a link to the book on Amazon. You can get Audible or um, the actual book to read. So I'll let leave that up to you. I'm not going to tell you anything about what's going on with my life because right now I am on a cruise heading to Alaska. So enjoy this interview and I will personally be back with you next week. Thanks everyone. Remember what I always say, aging ain't for sissies. everybody. I'm really excited to introduce to you Dr. Mitch Kleonsky. He is a board certified neuropsychologist who has treated more than 20,000 patients with cognitive problems. He and his physician wife, Dr. Emily, have written a book, Dementia Prevention, Using Your Head to Save Your Brain. And I'm very happy to have you here. I know my audience is excited. Um, this is something that we really haven't talked about. And it's something that I think Everybody, I'm 62. I think anybody, once they hit 50, honestly, starts thinking about this, unless they've had a parent or someone in their life that has had it. And um, I, my first, I have a question, and if it's too long of an answer, you can shorten it as best you can for us lay people. But is there a difference between Alzheimer and dementia? So that, first of all, happy to be here, Marcy. Pleasure <laughs> to meet you. Uh, and yeah, that is like, yeah, when we go out and do talks in the community, that's almost always the first question if we haven't already addressed it as part of the talk. Okay. So, and the, you know, the issue you talked about in terms of, you know, as you start getting into your 50s and 60s, you become more concerned about this. They did a study, a research uh, interview kind of thing a few years ago, and they discovered that 80% of people out there at almost any age have some concern that they're going to become demented as they get older, that they're going to lose mental abilities. They're going to make it difficult for them to function, take care of themselves, and basically to live a full life. So this is a very important topic. Okay. You know, it's, it's one that starts when we start hearing people talk about it in their 20s because they're caring for a grandparent exactly. in their 40s is because they now have children and they wonder, okay, what's going to go on when I get older? And if they've had a parent or have known someone closely who's had this, it becomes even more personal. Right. Now, I've been doing this profession for many years. When my mother developed dementia, back when I was younger than you, back in my early 50s, 
it brought a whole different level of understanding to this because now I was seeing what it was like from the caregiver's perspective, as well as from the doctor sitting across the table. But getting back to your question, because I wondered a little, think about Alzheimer's like you might think about Ford or Chevy. Okay. Ford and Chevy are brands of automobile. There's also, you know, Chrysler. There's also Toyota. So Alzheimer's is a form of dementia, just the same way there's Lewy body dementia, there's frontotemporal dementia, there's vascular dementia. There's, uh, Emily has estimated there may be 400 known causes, many of which are rather unusual and esoteric. So we don't see a lot of those. But just as much as we see people with Alzheimer's disease, we see people who have vascular problems, circulation problems. They're not getting enough blood and oxygen to their brain, and therefore their thinking has deteriorated. Oh, interesting. Okay. So there's all kinds of different ways that this could happen. There's certainly normal aging Mm -hmm. where we consider that, you know, you lose a half a step as you get older. You don't quite remember as well in your 80s as you did in your quite as quickly as you used to. Some things require more work. But by and large, you're still really functional. Okay. So if you look at dementia as the end point of a declining process. We start with the fact that everybody, as they get older in their thinking, that are normal for age, but basically not as good as they used to be when they were younger. Right. We deal with these, we call them senior moments. We adjust to them. We laugh about them sometimes. And we, in some cases, develop workarounds. Well, if that becomes worse in terms of being greater than what is, quote, normal, it begins to interfere with our functioning, then we have something called mild cognitive impairment. Now, MCI for short is before you become so bad that somebody with MCI develops dementia over the following three years. So it really is a wake-up call. We we try to catch people far before that when they're just just worried or thinking about what do I do now that I'm in my 30s, 40s, 50s, et cetera, to plan for not getting demented. I'm older. And I say plan for it because I consider this to be an active intervention, not just a matter of hoping and praying and wishing, but rather understanding what your strengths and weaknesses are and then doing things to accentuate your strengths and try to avoid or eliminate your weaknesses. Okay. All right. Well, um, in this book that you've written, Dementia Prevention, Using Your Head to Save Your Brain, how do we do that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you mean you want the 30-second version? The 30, uh, yeah, the 30-second. What, <laughs> what is it? What, what are a few steps that just listening to this, and it's scary just to listen to because you feel like you have zero control. You've watched other people go through it who seem like they have zero control and just slide. I think, what can we do? Okay, well, that's a great question. And you don't. Illnesses of dementia can be prevented. Okay. So one out of every two people didn't have to get dementia. And the trick is 
trying to be the one rather than the two in the one out of two people. Well, trying yes. to figure out what to put yourself to stack the odds, stack the deck in your favor. So in our book, we present, this is all research-based, by the way. It's published by Johns Hopkins Press. So okay. in order to be published by there, very research-oriented, scientific kind of group, we had to go through a variety of committees where experts in the field would vet the research and vet the writing to see if it was in fact consistent with the science. So that was several steps that don't happen if someone just wants to write their own book, publish right. it on Amazon, for example. So we've started by spending years, really, collecting research from a whole variety of different disciplines. Because it turns out there isn't one discipline that specializes in dementia. You have neurology, certainly. Mm-hmm. You also have psychiatry. Uh, okay. And people in neurology do things other than dementia. They do seizure disorders. They do Parkinson's. They do a bunch of things. In psychiatry, dementia is part of what they do, but it's not the majority. They're focused mostly on depression, anxiety, things like that. You've got people like me who are neuropsychologists. Our job is to test people's memory and their thinking abilities using objective tests. So we're sort of like the bathroom scale for dementia. You step on, you see how much you weigh. Well, we tell you how you do on these various tests that can give us information. As it turns out, elements of cardiology and how your heart is functioning become very important. Elements of pulmonology, breathing, as well as sleep medicine are really critical. You've got the endocrinologists who deal with diabetes, which is a cause for dementia. You get into the uh, substance abuse issues because alcohol, alcoholism, particularly over long periods of time, causes increased risk of dementia. We think that perhaps even marijuana could be implicated if it's used long enough, intensely enough. Okay. There's a whole variety of different medical fields. So you have to really look far and wide to pull in all this data. So fortunately, my partner, my wife, is a very skilled clinician, very skilled physician. She first was an internal medicine doctor. And then when her hips gave out, she couldn't run around after patients in various rooms. She got a second residency in psychiatry up at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. And then decided that what she wanted to do as a psychiatrist was to treat people with brain-related problems. So that's what she does now. She's more of a neurologist in many ways. So we share this passion for brain-related conditions. Consequently, she and I are able to look at this whole wide range of medical problems and to pull the literature, the research together. That's not enough because if all we did was to say, this study says this and that study says that, mm-hmm. you would have a very good book for helping people fall asleep. Right. Yes. They could just read it true. at a time and they'd be out like a light. So we have to translate it, not dumb it down, but translate it into language. where our patients tell us the kind of experiences that bring this to life. Because our goal in someone reading or listening to the book is that they will not only learn, but they're going to also be entertained in the process. 
So we build a model in this book. And while I tell people that dementia prevention is a thing, it is clearly not one thing. Okay. The biggest research study that was done on this identified 12 different things that were all important that could reduce your risk of dementia by at least 40%. Another said, no, no, if you add a couple of things here, we can make it 60%. Amazing. So one out of two. We actually add several to that. One of those being the whole area of sleep disordered breathing, otherwise known as sleep apnea. So if you or anybody you know has sleep apnea, you know that this is caused by not breathing enough times while you're asleep. I'm married you're stopping to breathing. Okay, well, I have sleep apnea, as does Emily. Turns out that 50% of people over age 58 have sleep apnea. Interesting. When you get into your 70s, that ratio goes up to about 70%. It is, in fact, in many ways, the secret sauce of preserving your brain because if you stop breathing multiple times while you're sleeping, not enough oxygen can then get out of the air, attached to the red blood cells, and get up to your brain. So you're spacey. You don't remember well. You don't have good energy. You oftentimes are up and depressed in very many ways. So treating the sleep apnea, hopefully your husband does that, is really, really important in preserving your brain as well as many other functions. So for people who can't see, you shook your head. I'll tell you why. You know, it's That's interesting because, because he, he says, does, he you know, has the machine and refuses to use it. Okay, well, you're going to, here's, so you're going to sit down and make him listen to this podcast because I'm going to tell you why this is important. And I understand completely because he's a guy, which means, according to him, he's perfect. Correct. He doesn't need anything else. Why would I, I've met too many of them, used to be one. Why would I want to sleep with this mask over my face attached to a hose to a machine that puts air under pressure and keeps my airway open? I will feel old, I'll feel sick, and I won't feel sexy. Right. So, first rule is you don't use the CPAP during sex. Well, yeah, there you go. Unless you're Tom afterwards, <laughs> unless, unless you're a little bit kinky. Yeah, you do it afterwards. So, you're not going to lose your sex appeal. In fact, your wife, who's now not listening to you struggle to breathe and snore, may actually stay in the same bed with you and you're going to have more opportunities. So, that's right. number one. Number okay. two, here's how I got myself. This was 20 years, 17 years ago when I started doing this, started using the CPAP. About that time, the movie Top Gun came out. And I was thinking about Tom Cruise. So he gets into his jet, puts on his helmet, right. straps on his oxygen mask, and takes off. Because he knows if he doesn't have his oxygen on, he's going to get up to 30,000 feet, fall asleep, go crashing to Earth. So I thought, Okay, let me just, silly as this is, pretend to be Tom Cruise. Right. I'll take off in my plane. And suddenly it became okay. And to this day, I have been proselytizing because 
50% of the men who end up going for those little blue pills to help them in the bedroom have sleep apnea. Sleep apnea is a leading cause of strokes and heart attacks. Sleep apnea actually is a leading cause of gout, of all things. Interesting. And if you treat this problem, you will probably extend your life. Does the very most recent research, I'm talking August 23, Mm -hmm. found that people with sleep apnea have a shortening of the chromosomes in the nucleus, the DNA of their cells. So in all of our cells, there are DNA strands made up of chromosomes. At the very end of these are little tiny caps. Think about the caps on your shoelace that keep your shoelace from unraveling. These are called telomeres. As we get older and the cells repeatedly divide over time as we age to create new cells, these chromosome strands get shorter and shorter and shorter until they can't reproduce. And at that point, eventually you die. Well, it turns out that if you've got sleep apnea and you treat it, your telomeres don't get shorter. If you don't treat it, they get shorter. They just discovered this using blood tests on these very specific groups of people. And they, did, they tested them for about a month on CPAP and a month off CPAP. Wow. And they grew blood tests. They drew blood tests and they compared them. So I really believe that one of the secrets to longevity, as well as good brain health, is oxygen. Who would have thought that? That's what I think. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty important to breathe. Yeah. And it's at the basis for diabetes, high blood pressure, energy levels, the things that make you want to get out and walk and exercise things that make you don't you know feel good about yourself and other people so we're selling oxygen this week that's what that's our sales pitch breathe. well yeah and i you know i've had um a, a woman sylvia adler on here talking to us about breathing and it, you know going along the same lines of how important oxygen is and then here we find out it's important to so many things and dementia is one of them another one and when you're asleep, you don't know it. That's, right. that's the sad thing. So many people I see say, oh, I don't think I have this. And I say, well, what do you mean? He says, well, I, I, I'm not aware of it. I said, well, you're sleeping. Right. Well, I guess you're right. I said, that's why these days you can get a one-night home sleep test. If you bought this retail, which you can, it costs about 250 bucks. Uh-huh. And so for your insurance company. It'll tell you how many times you experience this and what the treatment might be. Well, I I think, yeah, because I guess if you're not sleeping with someone who doesn't hear you gasping for air and sitting up in the middle of the night, you wouldn't know. And it's an important thing to know. So I suggest that highly, people. In fact, one of the ways they, they were able to persuade people to use the CPAP was to have their partner video them while they're sleeping. Because when they got to see themselves gasping and struggling and writhing around, it's a pretty demonstrable kind of message that says, wow, I'm doing that. I don't want to do that. No, absolutely. I think that that's that's a definite good way to do it. Maybe that's what I need to do. Get the video camera out. 
Well, it's it's extremely interesting. I think that um, everyone should read this book, Dementia Prevention, Using Your Head to Save Your Brain. We all need to save our brain. We're living longer, right? As, and so as our a risk of rule. dementia increases. That's right. Right. And if, you know, and that's, I've always thought to myself, you know, I, I think everybody does. If I'm going to live long, I want to live my best life. You know, I don't want to be just hanging on by a string and and all of those things. And I think the researchers like you are finding out way more things to help us. And because it's becoming a clinician to persuade the people we see. The real impetus for writing the book is I can only see maybe 800 to 1,000 patients a year. Right. That's not enough. I don't have that many cycles. I'm not going to be practicing. I'm 72. I'm not going to be practicing for the next 30 years. So the question is how to reach more people because this is a major problem for our society. And we need to do something and we have the tools to do something. We can't be praying for a cure because the likelihood is it will not happen. Right, right. Prevention can start happening today for everybody. I, um, a question just went right through my head. It's going to come back. I know it. Okay. So we, we've got the book. If, if somebody is out there and they're concerned about themselves or their thought processes or their feeling, I mean, we all know that there are certain things that we start forgetting. Obviously you don't have to start forgetting when you're older, as you challenge yourself, there's things I know that can help that. Who is the first person? stop for somebody who feels like they may have the beginnings of some sort of dementia? Ideally, it's your primary care physician. Okay. I say ideally because part of the dilemma we have is that primary care physicians, for as much as they care, don't have as much time as they need in seeing somebody they're limited or they've limited themselves based on insurance and demands for how long they're going to see you. So you have like 15 minutes and you better not have more than two problems. Also, they don't necessarily have good tools for doing an assessment and they have their own biases. So if you have a doctor who's your age or older, they may the complaints that you have, ideally what they should do is they should give you a brief test in the office. And unless you do really, really well on that, they should probably be sending you off to see somebody like me, a neuropsychologist who can spend three hours testing you and getting a really good idea of what your strengths and weaknesses are. And as you'll see in the book, there are a variety of background blood tests that should be looked at. You should do your own self-assessment. In the book, we have self-evaluation, well, dementia prevention checklist. But you don't have to get the book to get the checklist. You can go to our website, raindoc.com. You can download it, fill it out for yourself. And that'll show you what the ideal levels are, and you can find out where your levels are. Right. Uh, ideally, we would like you to read or listen to the book because it then is going to tell you what to do with that knowledge and how to make changes. Because one of the hardest things for all of us to do is to change. Yeah. Somewhere in adulthood, the impetus to change suddenly leaves most of us. You know, we're growing up, we're changing all the time. We're right. taking on new things. We're going to school. We're learning in jobs. We're developing all kinds of new skills. 
And somewhere along the line, we decide, okay, done. I'm fully baked here. But as you know, as we get older, there are even greater challenges that we have to adapt to. And usually we don't have any training in these areas. And we have to keep curious and open mind. So I tell people about this whole process of worrying about dementia. As we say in the book, do not be a dementia warrior. Right. Become a prevention warrior. Do something, figure out your risk, and then make changes. And we'll show you how. There's three chapters in the book devoted to making change. Why it's so difficult and how to break it down into steps you can take. Because I don't want to just have people worried. I want them to do something different. Right. Find the change. You know, the one thing that I do think about my audience is, is we, it is, it skews older, obviously, because of the topic, but if they've already found podcasts, I find that there's hope for you out there because if you're doing podcasts, that's something that wasn't available, you know, even, well, 10 years ago. Yeah, but not so much. And so I think that that's a great thing. And it shows that you have that ability to make changes and to continue. I'm I'm an odd duck. I love changes, always love change. The more the change, the better for me. Um, but I understand that most people aren't like that. But if you don't change and if you don't learn and if we don't continue to grow, then we get stagnant at any point in our life. And when we're getting older, I think our biggest changes are ahead of us. You kind of yeah. touched on that a little bit. I think the bigger things are coming down the pike and and, and it may be. It may be something is losing your own child or there's things that you're not expecting. We think things are going to go a certain way and that's not necessarily how they're going to go. I, uh, the thought that had gone through my head is my husband and I both had our physicals this week. I'm 62. He's 67. And he came home from his this morning and he goes, did they give you a cognitive test? And I said, no. I said, they probably gave it to you because you're on social, on, on med, excuse me, Medicare. And that's part of what they have to do for that. And so he was going through it. I go, and you know, and he's kind of poo-pooing it. And I said, you know, Craig, you shouldn't. Because what if you didn't know where to put the clock hands on the clock? Or what if you didn't? What if one of those things you went, whoa, I don't know that all of a sudden. I said, these are really important tests and they didn't used to do them. And I said, I'm glad to hear that the doctor is doing them and making people aware of these things. And little did I know it was going to come into play today within our conversation that, yeah, you, you were talking about you know, starting with your your primary care physician and um, here our primary care. She's a young gal was doing that. And it made me happy because I thought. What if I all of a sudden she asked me to you know draw a circle and put this time on the put the numbers on the clock and the time and I couldn't do it. That's not something you do every day. It's not something that you think about. But now all of a sudden you're being asked to do it and you can't. Right. That and that's the kind of measure. And when you think about it, we should have been doing it all along. I'm glad right. that your doctor is doing this because it would be akin to going in and the doctor say to you, "So how's your blood pressure?" You say. What do you mean? Don't you want to put a sphygmomometer on my arm? Right. Blood pressure cuff and test it? Or how's your weight? Well, I don't know. Why don't you just step on the scales and get weighed? Right. And you still may argue, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm usually, I got my shoes off. Let me take all my clothes off here. Right. And my ring. Pounds in my ring. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But we're measuring those things. We should right. be measuring cognition. 
Well, and, and when you think about pediatricians with babies, they measure everything. Everything is measured every time they go in. And I agree. I think as we get older, those things can should things could should continue to be measured at with such vigorousness as we did when children were babies and they were going up. And as we're going down, they should keep an eye on us as well. I agree. And I'm excited for your book. I'm sorry, go ahead. Thank you. I was going to say there's so much you can do when you catch it early as opposed to catching it late. The options are so much greater when we begin to see the scales tilting in the wrong direction because we can, in many cases, do some of those things. Well, I agree. And I, I'm I'm excited to get through your book. I'm definitely going to listen to it. I love to listen to books. Um, I like when I'm in the car and I can listen. Um, I I will have this on my website, everybody. I will also have um the website braindoc.com so you can link to it from my website. And Dr. Kleonsky has been great in answering some of our beginning questions here on um dementia and Alzheimer's and some of the things we have to not look forward to. And hopefully with his help in this great book, um, we can stave some things off. And I appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure and uh, have to be back anytime. Love to talk more about this. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you.